I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. Thank you for joining us on Crime Scene Today. I'm Dan Zintek, your host. Today, our guest is Dr. Sybil Buccelli, a forensic entomologist, associate professor at Sam Houston State University, teaches contemporary biology, zoology, forensic entomology, metacriminal entomology, and evolution. Her current research studying insects as it relates to post-mortem interval on human remains at the Southwestern Texas Applied Forensic Science Facility. Thank you for joining us today, Sybil. Hi, thanks for having me. So, to start off, uh, obviously, I'm sure you've been asked this so many times in your career. What is a forensic entomologist? So, uh, to start with, an entomologist is, a, of course, somebody who studies insects, and a forensic entomologist is somebody who can take information about insect biology and apply it to particular situations um, to help answer questions about those situations. And so, when people think of forensic entomology, I think that... Um, kind of Gil Grissom from CSI kind of pops into their mind, that TV show. Um, and so they associate forensic entomology mostly with um, cadaver research, but it can also encompass areas such as agriculture, um, stored pest products, um, sometimes traffic accidents without identified situations are caused by people um, kind of freaking out over a bee or a spider being in their car, right? So right. it can be it can be a really big, broad topic. Now, we're getting into numerous things that you've studied, your research and things, but sort of back up, how long have you wanted to do this? Yeah. Um, I have, it's hard to say. My mother says I was born this way. So I know I'm quoting Lady Gaga, that, that, song, that song of hers, but my mom says I was born this way. I have always loved insects, and so as far back as I can remember, I've always wanted to be an entomologist. And then when I was at Ohio State, um, I did some work with some of the entomologists there, um, and it just kind of grew into what it is today. Although, when I was doing my dissertation work at Ohio State, my focus was not exactly the same as it is now. So I studied moths, um, and not really, not really flies. So. Okay. So in, in most of the forensic entomology I'm familiar with as far as what we do on crime scenes and, and my very limited knowledge of it is the insect activity as it relates to trying to come up with time of death. It's yes, something sir. that is uh, very hard to determine. Uh, many times we find a body and uh, knowing, at least in general, when they died may uh, limit suspects, it may pinpoint suspects. And so most of the studies I've heard about have been with flies. I know that's not mm -hmm. the only part of it, but uh, generally, um, am I on the right track that's mostly what this is, or is it much bigger than that? I think it, it can take on a couple different trajectories. And so you, in some situations, um, it might just involve studying the flies. In other situations, it might encompass the entire ecosystem of insects and maybe additional arthropods. Um, and now, um, and this is this is still far out from being used in law enforcement, although I think we're getting closer and closer. Now we're looking at how insects, bacteria, um, and cadavers interact. Right. So it can be very focused on just maggots, or it can be or it can be really really broad. And and sometimes. Um, I don't know, each, each situation is unique, which I'm sure you well, could attest to. But. So now, one thing that, that's also very unique, so now you're at, you know, what most investigators, and we refer to it as a body farm, and I know <laughs> that, that most scientists do not like that term, uh, and we're told many times we don't, we don't grow <laughs> bodies, right? Uh, these are, are people who have donated their yes, body sir. to science, and we certainly have great respect uh, for them and, and great appreciation for uh, the research that their donation has provided for us. Yes. Uh, but you work at uh, the one, or I, you work for SAM, but this facility is part of SAM and, and provided up there. Um, how many of these facilities are there? Uh, I know last count, I knew the, the original one was in Tennessee. Yes. 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 
And what since then? So I think we're up to six, um, I think. So, and I'm going to have trouble listing them, but. Well, two are in Texas. Two are in Texas, um, Tennessee, um, Colorado has one. I think um, South Carolina, and then maybe Indiana. Okay. And, and I knew about the last I checked, it was, I knew Colorado, I knew we had mm -hmm. one, two in Texas, mm -hmm. and then of course the original in Tennessee, yeah. which uh, finally was able to expand and get a little bit more than their one acre that they originally yes. worked on for so <laughs> yeah. many years. But with that, we talked about the unique nature. Um, those areas, it seems from conversations, the environment and the variables of, of soil and, and just where those are located plays such a big factor that it, the research that you're doing, does it then limit the outcome of your research to specifically that region? <laughs> yes and no. So, so we're at, um, it's actually the AARC now, it's been renamed. So okay. staffs, the Southeast Texas Applied Forensic Science Facility is now the uh, Applied Anatomical Research Center. You know we're still going to call it the body farm, right? I, I <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> um, and so we are located um, about 11 miles northeast of the campus in Huntsville, Texas. And we are um, in the heart of the Piney Woods ecoregion. And so kind of getting to your question, um, you know, we think of, we think of, so forensic entomology is a discipline that's based in biology. And it's got a couple different, you know, driving mm, theories, um, ecology, biodiversity, and then insect behavior. Um, and so being located in the uh, Piney Woods ecoregion, we have insects that are very specific to that fauna, right? So it's an area of the world that's dominated by um, pine forests. We have acidic soils, um, Huntsville's in subtropical, um, as is Houston. So we have a lot of rainfall. And it's a, you know, it's a unique ecosystem. And, um, and then if you, can you compare that to the one in San Marcos, the mm -hmm. center in San Marcos, it's a much more arid region, right. right, with hardly any trees. You know, the soil's different, the rainfall's different, the um, <clears throat> humidity is different. So in Huntsville, during the summer, our apply our um, our humidity is about forty percent during the day, but at night it drops down. About midnight it drops down to about hundred percent, right? So, we have this really unique system. And so, your question about it being unique, <clears throat> and my answer being yes and no, there are some generalities that we can make, right? The original research at the facility in Tennessee established the science. Um, built a really good foundation, um, established some really good generalities, and then we can take that information and work more on that and make, and um, you know, um, just come up with the, the, the parts of the science that are unique to the ecoregion that we're in. Right, so one thing that Tennessee determined is that uh, everyone decomposes in the same stages. They, they, they will go through these stages to get from point A to point Z or whatever. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. So you know, they'll happen in the same order. So mm -hmm. I guess really beyond that, uh, it's sort of variable as to how long that takes and other things that would happen. I'm smiling because this is something that we're kind of in the, in the middle of in, in the research that I do. So um, I don't know if you're familiar with the publication, Megessi 2005, where um, uh, Megessi et al. establishes a quantification technique to look at a cadaver by regions. Okay. The head and the neck, the trunk, and then the limbs. And then she establishes a method that you can score each of these areas of the body independently and then come up with a total score and then you can say, well, that body is in state whatever, or stage whatever decomposition based on this score that I gave. And so that's a really kind of a breakthrough analysis because it recognizes that the body decomposes differentially. So in our research, we have established, we, we see all the time, I have not established in a publication, but we see all the time, the face decomposes much more quickly, the, then the arms and the legs go, and then the trunk is usually the, the slowest to decompose. So, um, so yes, like this basis, this like, the time frame, the big, um, 
large scale time frame of the stages of decomposition, I think were established at the Tennessee Body Farm. And then we have kind of been looking at that, you know, more specifically. And, and then in Texas, in where we are in uh, Huntsville, we have this really, um, you know, we have to deal with the sun. Right, yes. <laughs> and we have to deal with the humidity. And, um, you know, decomposition can move along quickly if the environment is moist and there's a lot of scavengers, but if the environment is too moist, then you're gonna end up with um, adiposeer formation, which is, you know, the opposite of decomposition is preservation. Um, or if the sun is beating on your cadaver, you can end up with the opposite of decomposition in terms of dehydration and mummification, which is, of course, you know, the opposite of decomp. It's a, it's a preservation method also. And we would so, expect seeing those in low humid, like Arizona has a lot of mummification yeah. versus what we see, the putrefaction here. Yeah, and so I, I think it depends on what time of year we're placing our research cadavers, um, whether or not we will get, you know, um, full decomposition or some kind of mummification like the sun can can start mummification or if we get some cold weather and it slows down the maggots that can start some mummification so it can be a little um it, it i don't want to say it's not doing what tennessee says it's doing because it certainly is but it can be it can be a little bit you know well there's a lot of variables variables that's the word i'm looking yeah. for yeah there's it can be highly variable and I know that some of those you try to control uh, yeah. and try to uh, regulate and such. Yes. Um, you know, one question that I have, and I, I know many have had this even in your field, and certainly you have done research on it, and that is no matter if I am in an open field or if I am in a office building that is well built and there's a death that occurs and no one gets to the body, the flies will find it, yes. right? Yes. And so it's what gets the flies there, okay? Yes. Yes. Uh, obviously in the field, obviously in, in a place that they already exist, mm -hmm. very simple answer, right? Mm -hmm. they, they're already in that environment, mm -hmm. but what about where they're not? What about when they're not? I love that question. Um, I, this is gonna sound like a crazy answer to your question, right? I took my dog out last night I come back in the house, and before I know it, my cat is in hunting position, making her little hunting noise, and, you know, some big fly rode in on me. So right. we're talking about opportunistic animals. And um, the house fly, for example, right, Musca domestica is found worldwide because it is really good at traveling with us, right? The, the larvae feed on a lot of different food sources, and everywhere... Humans have colonized, so has that fly. So some of your flies that you're going to find in an indoor setting are going to be able to just fly in when you open the door or ride in, or even um, in a house that might have some kind of opening that we don't know about, right? The insects have found it. All right, so is there... Is, is it a smell? Is it a release of a chemical? Is there something that attracts them? <laughs> so there's a lot of research um, that looks into that, and that's kind of a, you know... Um, behavioral ecology, physiological question. And um, what I can tell you is that insects are, insects are covered in sensory organs. Um, if you look at an insect, a picture of an insect taken at a high um, resolution, um, you're gonna see hairs. Right. And uh, what those hairs are, are actually um, um, sensory perception organs. And so a lot of these hairs are hollow and a neuron extends to the tip of this hair and these neurons are going to be chemosensors uh, for uh, airborne molecules, or they can, you know, sense um, chemicals uh, dissolved in, in liquids. But they're flying sensor. They're they're flying sensory organs. Like they've got these wonderful antennae. They've got they're covered in these neurons, and they do smell something. Right. <laughs> and we're working on what that is, but. Um, I, you know, we've placed, we've placed cadavers for research and, you know, as we're kind of unzipping the bag and placing the cadaver, flies are landing and I, you know, three seconds in. So right. they're, they're just amazing at being flies. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, and I love them. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> so, and obviously at the, 
at the research facility. Uh, they exist. They're already yes. on other mm -hmm. bodies. They're mm -hmm. already on other things that are there. Mm -hmm. um, and no different than we've had uh, in uh, open fields and mm -hmm. open areas and those type of things that we have. Um, we have some insects and activities and things that already exist, uh, which, so taking that into account, uh, how do you factor that in when, when you're trying to figure out time of death? And mm -hmm. I know that certain things, again, basic knowledge here of what I need to provide my entomologist, uh, the, the weather that mm -hmm. was happening in that area, mm -hmm. and then certainly the current environment they were in. But mm -hmm. beyond that, what would an entomologist want from a CSI on what was happening at that scene to help them sort of determine that? Um, that's, those are great questions. Um, I would, I would love, um, you know, in an ideal world, the, absolutely the maggots um, alive, some alive, some dead, preserved in ethanol, um, and then the weather, yes, absolutely. But then um, pictures of, of this, of the scene, of the ecosystem, what, what it field, was in. yeah, field versus a forest. Um, uh, was there a creek or a pond nearby, um, or was it just really dry? Is it you know high high ele highland versus lower elevation? Um, and and then I would like you know again like in a dream world like is it just a pine forest or were there oak trees there too? Was there a lot of underbrush? Was there a lot of grass or was the grass absent? Yeah, because again like you know we're grounded we're grounded in in a discipline of of biology, and these are really important ecology um, determinants. So now you want uh, many maggots, and obviously, depending mm -hmm. on what stage they're in, they may not be on the body anymore. Yeah. So, so where where would you want them collected from? So um, we ask that you know, as, as a discipline, we ask that um, you look for quote-unquote infestations areas on the cadaver where there's a lot more maggots than other areas so um, and then from that from that group of maggots maggots um, are gregarious which means that they are found in large groups they really um, there's safety in numbers um, from that mass we would like the largest maggot and maybe even the smallest maggot um, and then any size in between and if they're not on the cadaver, as you said. Um, right, from what I remember, they, they leave the body for they, their, their change. They, yeah, so they, they'll, they're going to pupate. And I can talk about the life cycle of the fly in a minute if you want. But yeah, they're going to leave the body and they're going to um, go into the state of dormancy so that they can transform to become the fly. And some maggots are going to travel further away from the body than others. And so some, some are going to pupariate at the cadaver. Some are going to leave to go somewhere safer. Some are going to go down into the ground. Um, but there's usually always some insect evidence. Right. Well, yeah. and, and one thing that uh, you, we've always been trained is that they're going for natural holes in the body. Yes. Okay. So if they're in an area that there should not be a natural hole, there possibly was an injury there beforehand. That is correct. That is correct. Um, so in my research, um, our first colonizing fly uh, is, um, you know, in, in summer in Texas is going to be a fly in the genus Lucilia. And those flies are, um, they're usually, they're really rural flies. You're, they're not going to really be found in a city setting. We have other flies that are going to be found you know, in, a, in an area that's more inhabited. But these flies, Lucilia is going to fly to the nose. And almost always, that's the first place that the, fem the female arrives at the body um, gravid, which means um, full of eggs that are ready to be fertilized. And so in a, fl a fly fertilizes the eggs as they pass out of the body. So she arrives gravid with all the eggs ready to go. And then she she'll fly to the nose and then she'll lay her eggs in the nose, yeah. And so, and then other flies are going to maybe have other sites that they prefer. And, and yeah, if you see, you know, fly, a lot of maggots maybe, you know, in a belly button or in the side of the body, yeah. That, that's not normal. Yeah. That's, that's, not, that's <laughs> not their initial preference. That is, yes, that is true, yeah. So, 
Now, what we would love to have is we'd love to have so many forensic entomologists available that they came to scenes, they helped us, but there's not that many of y'all around to do that. Um, so now you, yeah. you teach <laughs> and, and you, yeah. you train, but, but mm -hmm. your students uh, that you teach, their uh, goal when they finish is not usually always helping at crime scenes and stuff. Their end result, what are many things they go into? So at SAM, we have, um, in biology in particular, we train only up to the level of the master's student. And at that point, um, they usually have to go somewhere else if they want a PhD. And so, you know, students will go on to Texas A&M or other universities that offer a PhD in entomology. So um, some of them do go on to continue to do research in forensic um, entomology, forensic um, fields of forensic biology. And then some of them, um, some of our graduate students have, you know, uh, graduated and gotten jobs at, in police departments. I, I don't really know that end of things, right? They're, they're there to help analyze data. And so we have, a, we have a lot of students doing a lot of different things. But, but I think like at, at SAM, um, I don't know, like, I don't really let my master's students come to a crime scene with me. <laughs> right. Um, and it's partly, I mean, it's, it's to protect them from Right, it's, it's controversial. Uh, yeah. It, there's, uh, I know that uh, we've also had uh, a doctor, by the way, yes. out of your facility, and, mm -hmm. and her and her master's students have come out to search yes. for skeletal remains. Well, yes. that, that's a lot different yes. in, in searching for something that you may possibly find mm -hmm. and then put the right people on excavating versus uh, putting students on, on the body that's going to be collecting evidence specifically for uh, the, the crime. That is correct. And so, you, yeah, that, that chain of command paperwork, I want it to, to all stay with me. And um, I use their research um, in that, you know, they are, they're important, they're important members of the, of my, of my team. For example, I have a student right, right now, um, Bethany, who is collecting all of the maggots, she's using rats as models, and she's collecting all of the maggots, identifying all of the maggots for, for summer and winter. And then once she has that, their identity established, she can come up with proportions of species in these maggot masses. And then we can take that and subsample from a cadaver, you know, just walk out to the facility, like literally with a soup label, ladle, scoop up a huge spoonful of maggots, take them back in the lab, identify all of them, and then look at the proportion of species in that subsample, and then see is that representative of the of the population that she um, knows in detail, right? So my master's students are critical in my research program, and I think um, you know helping to move the science along. Yeah, but but I don't they don't really go to crime scenes. So now and and you talk about identifying the different species. So what I'm curious about different obviously different flies, different maggots, uh, do they um, I guess uh, grow at different rates? In other words, is the decomposition of this is different because this different fly or this different maggots there versus another species. I think, um, again, yes and no. <laughs> um, nobody goes into biology because they like rules. Right, right. <laughs> we, all, we have a joke at Sam. It's, if you like rules, you should be a chemist. Um, I think that if you're dealing in blowflies, the family Califoridae, um, their variation in their life cycle is going to be pretty minimal. But if you're just, if you just have flesh flies, you might see something like, like you've raised, right? Something where like, you know, flesh flies aren't found in the abundance that blow flies are found in and therefore might be less efficient at uh, removing soft tissues than the blow flies. So something like, or, or versus like um, only um, coffin flies, which were the, the star insect in the Casey Anthony case, right? right? If you only have those tiny little flies they're going to be there, and they can be indicative of a postmortem interval, but they're not going to consume flesh the way that the flesh fly, that the blowflies do. So I think that, again, like the answer to your question is yes and no. It can make a difference, but it, it's got to be, you know, at the level of like 
exclusion. Yeah, of, of exclusion that. of an entire family kind of thing. So the big research is obviously to try to get to a, a time of death, which helps us great in criminal death. So how close can we get? <laughs> I mean, obviously, you're not going to walk in and say, because this flies here, 932 uh, <laughs> on Thursday. That's when they were dead. And if somebody does that, you should <laughs> send them back out the door, <laughs> right? Like, right. heck no. Um, uh, uh, within a day, two days, I think it just depends. It depends on the situation. Um, it depends on how, what your time frame is, right? So we have two different models we use in, well, you know, three different models we use in forensic entomology, but we can break them down right now into two big ones. Our first model is the maggot age model. And so the maggot, so the idea there is that the postmortem interval is going to correlate to the maggot age. And if you can establish how old your maggot is, then you have some idea, some pretty good idea of the postmortem interval. So that's why we ask for the largest maggot, because it's going to be the oldest maggot. Um, and that is going to be useful only as long as your first colonizing fly maggot is still feeding on the body. So it's, and that is temperature dependent, which is seasonal, seasonal dependent, right? So that can be useful anywhere from, you know, the time of, the time of egg hatch up to the time of um, your first colonizer pupariating. So, you know, a week to two weeks. And then after that, you have to start to look at, you can't just focus, you can't just zoom in on one maggot, the age of that maggot. You kind of have to expand and you have to look at the entire body as an ecosystem. And you have to look at how many adults are there, how many, you know, the proportion of adults, what adults, how many maggots are on there? Are there, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of maggots um, or, you know, some greatly reduced fauna? We look at, you know, we can look at beetles. And so, and that is the succession model. So the succession models state that uh, through time, as the body decomposes, it's going to go through um, really drastic changes. And these are changes that are, um, we mostly describe through dehydration. So up until bloat, the body is in very wet stages of decomposition. And then after bloat and purge, the body enters these drier states of decomposition. And the insects that you find on a, active on a body in wet decomposition are really different than the insects you find active during dry decomposition. So we can piece together these, these big picture um, timeframes by looking at who is present at the time of discovery. Nope. Plus with features of the body, right? We always add in features of the body. Is the body bloated? Is, you know, are large amounts of tissue removed? Things like that. And I mean, one to two days may seem to a lot of people like a long time, but, mm -hmm. you know, we have cases that uh, a husband kills his wife, he leaves town, he comes back to find them deceased, mm -hmm. and we can put it that this person was dead within that time frame prior to him leaving town, those type of things. So it's still very huge to us. Now, mm -hmm. besides... Flies being on there, you talk about other insects and mm -hmm. beetles and things. So, do they all go for a feeding purpose? Is it just colonizing for it's a place to be? Uh, so, in, insects are driven by. Um, I, I'm just going to say it because I'm a biologist. They're driven by food and they're driven by sex, right? right? So, um, a lot of your flies are going to be, or a lot of your insects are going to be on that on that um, cadaver as a food resource. Um, but once you're there already feeding, wouldn't it be convenient if your mate was there also? And so you're going to find that, you know, a lot of insects are going to be able to complete their life cycle on a cadaver. And some insects can only complete their life cycle on that cadaver, whereas other insects can kind of come and go. So, um, so we get, you know, we get the more, so the, the insects that tell us the most about what's going on are those insects that have to be on the cadaver for food and for mating because they can't be anywhere else, right? They're, they're obligatory to that lifestyle as opposed to like, so that would be something like, um, I'm thinking of Lucilia, um, Mexicana, and Exenia. Those are two species of blowflies that are exclusively flesh eaters. Their, their maggots are exclusively flesh eaters. The adults are, are um, liquid feeders, right? Um, adults don't like consume pieces of meat. They kind of they have this like drinking straw mechanism of feeding, and that's different than something like a housefly, 
where the maggots of a housefly can develop on, you know, decomposing trash or feces or or flesh. So that's not so it's not Limiting. so obligatory. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you have uh, I know at least one case that you've been called to testify on. I mean, do you get called often to testify in reference to your expertise in this? I get called a lot. I'm laughing because in one day I had a Texas Ranger and detectives from Montgomery County at my office within like three hours of each other and my students. <laughs> they were concerned why they were there? That they couldn't relate it to oh, the, Dr. The Mitchell, I would she do? Because <laughs> some of them don't know that I do this. They, right. They're just, they see, you know, official people with like guns going by and they're just, oh. Anyway, um, yeah, so a lot of times I'll get, I'll get, I, I think I get access to a lot for background. And, and a lot of, I mean, I'm willing to testify. A lot of times I'm never called back and I just think well, maybe the case is settled or I don't know. I don't know what happens. <laughs> but well, yeah, yeah. I, I, I type up official reports. I send them to whoever asked me and sometimes I'm called back, sometimes I'm not. Well, I know that you were in a high profile case in Montgomery County mm -hmm. in the Swearingen case. who's yeah. still sitting on death row uh, that uh, uh, you were called because of the time uh, that uh, uh, Ms. Trotter was in the National Forest mm -hmm. and trying to determine, again, and that was really sort of the, the basis is uh, the argument by the defense was that he couldn't have done it because mm -hmm. he wasn't available at the time. Mm -hmm. And so trying to determine. But I think one of the biggest challenges you had to have in that was the time frame that had gone by mm -hmm. and uh, trying to find uh, good information, uh, which goes back to what we talked about earlier, and that is collection. Mm -hmm. I know in, in one of the articles uh, that uh, you had written or were interviewed for, you made the comment that uh, proper collection or the lack of proper collection mm -hmm. can certainly lead to issues in, in the court. Mm -hmm. uh, so where would someone go to be trained in the proper collection other than going to graduate school? Um, so at the AARC, Dr. Joan, by the way, holds training courses um, in the summer. And so you can visit the AARC website. Um, if you search for SHSU, AARC, it will bring up the facility. Um, and she hosts these training sessions. And they are geared to um, whatever the person taking them needs, right? So she can gear them to specifics that you know law enforcement might be looking for or they can be really broad and kind of training um educators at the high school or even college level so i think that they can be you know uh tailored to what the uh, student needs but i am i am willing <laughs> say this on air i'm willing <laughs> to come to you guys and bring my rolling suitcase of fun with me right and unpack the microscope and teach you guys what to do. And so. how to collect and yeah, all that. And yeah, and talk to, talk to whoever wants to listen. So uh, how long have, have you been doing this for the research and all? Um, I have been at SAM doing research at the, um, the facility since 2006. It, the facility opened in 2009, but I started doing casework in 2006. And obviously, uh, I was about every PhD in, at a college uh, is research-driven. So yeah. what research are you currently working on? Oh, so much. Um, so we actually, my students and I took a long time to establish the baseline of the fauna, of the insect fauna for Southeast Texas. And, um, and this was kind of goes back to your question about it being potentially specific to an area. We do say that forensic entomology is kind of geospecific. And you have to have a really good understanding of your species of insects in your area to be able to understand or, you know, read the information that they're providing. Um, so we spent a long time establishing the baseline diversity of carrion insects in southeast Texas. Um, we know the diversity of the flies that are here. We know when they're active. We know when they're not active. Um, so, for example, our most common winter fly is a fly that is the summer fly in Michigan. So, you know, little things like that are important. Um, and, and then we spent some really wonderful and interesting years looking at unusual activity. 
And my favorite um, unusual activity was the day that oak-feeding caterpillars decided to eat human flesh. And I had to convince... <laughs> I had to convince lepidopterists, people who study moths and butterflies, that this was going on. Um, and I would have, so when my student came to me, Natalie Lindgren came to me and said, Dr. B, the caterpillars are eating the skin flakes where the toenails used to be. And I was like, no, they're not. <laughs> Blew her off. <laughs> yeah, I was like, nah, -uh, they don't do that. And then she came back to me. She's like, they're doing it. And I was like, Natalie, you're not. Go away. And then she came back to me with a video. And she's like, they're doing it on the cadaver and... At the time, we had a decomposing alligator gar. They were doing it there, too. So it's that that kind of thing now in the entomological um, field that we're kind of, is the most interesting for things for us to document is like when when things are not standard, right? Here's, we know what's well, going well, on. Something's outside the box. Mm -hmm, right. Outside the box. And, and a lot of the current publications in forensic entomology are kind of focusing on outside the box, too. But... But back, but my lab now, we're actually um, looking at this idea that as a as a body decomposes and dehydrates, the insects are going to colonize it in waves, right? And and their time of colonization is driven by preference for the state of decomposition the cadaver's in, right? So that is a that is a field of biology we call succession. It's predictable. Okay. We know when they're arriving or when they should arrive, and then we know when they should leave because they themselves had changed the habitat beyond their preference and then they go they go to the next cadaver but we know that bacteria are doing this so bacteria are going to change through time on a cadaver such that certain communities of bacteria are going to be active at different stages of decomposition and so we're actually we've actually taken a turn towards the microbiology area where we've been concentrating our efforts on um, collecting bacteria, establishing community structure of the bacteria, of the, of the samples that we collect from, like what bacteria are there and when, and then running that through computer models that can tell us whether or not the community structure of the bacteria is predictive, right? So if I tell the computer, these are the bacteria I find on stages one, three, five, and then I go to a unknown source swab and then tell the computer these are the bacteria I have it should be able to tell me oh it's in stage three and I was looking because uh, that's something new as far as back now is the bacteria I guess it's coming from everywhere but I mean uh, obviously from the body that's mm -hmm. decomposing mm -hmm. uh, then uh, the insects themselves mm -hmm. and then I guess just what's in the environment all three of those combined creating yes uh, yeah you know, that's exactly sequence. right yeah so we've established so I work really closely with um, researcher Jessica Metcalf and um, Rob Knight, and Jessica's in Colorado. Rob Knight's in San Diego, and we work really closely with these with these um, two groups. And so we've been able to establish a lot of different things. But uh, at SAM, we established that um, your body is going to pass through three major stages of microbial fauna, and and um, and now we need to fine tune or or more deeply investigate those. But your first stage of microbial diversity is um, more similar to who you are when you're alive, right? So you're just, everybody is just this walking, talking ecosystem of microbes. Right. And then upon death, some of those bacteria are still active. Um, some of them die too, but some of them maintain activity. And then in the summer, <coughs> um, the, back, the, the microbes will shift, the community structure shifts from being kind of human, uh, human to fly, right? So there are a couple species of bacteria that are associated with flies. We only see them with flies. We never see them if there's no flies. And that kind of makes sense, right? right? Because that's when they're active. And then the body dries out. And as soon as that happens, the, the, the fly diversity, uh, fly microbial diversity, goes away too and then the bacteria become more similar to the soil which makes sense because we've got you know rain or whatever wind splashing that those bacteria from the ground up onto the cadaver so we see these three major stages of microbial succession and so yeah we're trying to fine-tune those now so i i'm not so if you ask me i don't say well it's just in wet decomp right now maybe i could say like oh that's 266 accumulated degree hours that, so, that's our goal yeah so if if <laughs> You break this into the stages, so 
the end result we could possibly narrow down time frames. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we said before, right now we're about maybe a day, two days, yeah. three, depending on variables or whatever. Yeah. Uh, where do you think this would take us? So right now, and this is this is um, the the paper. This is data from a paper that we uh, published in Metcalf et al. in uh, Science. Right now, we're at about two and a half days with microbial diversity, but this, so it's not, it's not necessarily at this point doing better than entomological data, but what if there are no insects, right? What if, like, as, as time, how do I want to say this? We live in really nice houses, and these houses are really nice and sealed up, and what if the flies don't get in there, and, you know, there's no way, there's no maggots to turn to? Well, maybe the microbes can tell us. So, I don't think I've been on a scene yet where I haven't had a fly there. As a forensic <laughs> entomologist, I am thrilled to hear that. <laughs> they, they, they seem to find the body no matter yeah. how good the, the yeah. place is or not. Yeah. The, um, what do you see? I mean, obviously, this is huge. This is a big thing. What do you see as the future of forensic entomology? I mean, where, I mean, where you see this going 10 years, 20 years? What do you see developing that? You can't even grasp really right now. It's just sort of a yeah. thought that you're heading towards. That's a really great question. Um, well, one thing that has to happen is, as you know, as I said, we're lucky here in East Texas because we have a facility that we can we can do all this research at, and it is it is a geospecific science. And so, I think for is every for every major ecosystem, there needs to be a facility to study human decomposition. And I don't know if you know your average community is going to be thrilled to hear that, but I think that you know to really understand this, you can't take, you know, we can't take what we know about decomposition in East Texas and apply that to Minnesota. Well, and it's come a long way considering. I mean, how long was Tennessee yeah. research facility around? Oh, you know, question. prior to us opening one in Texas, yeah. and then we had two in Texas, and yeah. so it seems to. Be growing mm-hmm. uh, at, at I won't say in any way an alarming rate, but but it, it's certainly growing way yeah. more than it was. Uh, people are accepting it, but you're right. If you tell them that you're going to go and put dead bodies down the road from them, I mean, even both in Sam and in San Marcos, these are not anywhere near Mm-mm. close to mm-hmm. a. You're you're driving to mm-hmm. get there, right? Yes, yes, that is right. Although they are building some really nice housing developments around our field station at. At Sam, yeah. So the the facility at SHSU is nine acres within a larger 250 acre area that Biology owns. It's it's our Biology field station. So when you go out to visit us, right, it's it's um we're surrounded by woods. Yeah, right. yeah. So you know we're lucky that we can do that. And you know I don't know, you know maybe it's harder for a university maybe that's located in some downtown metropolitan area to do that. But yeah, so, so that, that would be a good direction for future forensic entomology studies, um, just to kind of confirm these models that already have been established. Um, but like I said, what we know, what we know at SAM though, is that some of these insects that have always been traditionally thought of as late stage feeders, sometimes they can come much earlier than we thought. So, um, those coffin flies, for example, um, they're always thought of as being, you know, preferring later stage decomp. Well, we get them, we get them at time of placement sometimes. Um, so that kind of stuff has to really be investigated. Um, and then, as I was saying, like the fun part for me are those anomalies. I think we need to look, we need to look into that too. So in terms of forensic entomology, um, we can't just look at what we, we can't just look for what we expect. We have to kind of have our minds open to things like flesh feeding, oak feeding, caterpillars. So those anomalies are really important. But we're still missing a lot of basic information. Um, uh, Not all life cycles of all flies are known. In fact, not all first colonizing flies are known. Um, So, you know, the first colonizing fly here, like I said, is not going to be, it's not going to be the same as in San Marcos. Your flies that like the forest aren't leaving the forest. And the flies that like the desert aren't leaving the desert. So... And it says a lot, considering San Marcos is not that far away. I mean, it, yeah, exactly. So we're talking about mm-hmm. three hours, three and a half hours from the other facility. So yeah. when you're, when you think about the span of three and a half hours away from anywhere you are, that it could change that mm-hmm. much. And we have six that's collecting the data for those regions. Then yes. a lot is missing. Yes, at, agree. At the moment. Agree. Uh, 
So now I'm going to tell a story. The, the first time that I met you, which is actually uh, uh, been a while back, yeah. uh, but I came to you because we had actually gone to the facility, and I, I came to you on a different case just to talk to you about. But we were at the facility uh, doing burn research yeah. on, on a body, and I have to say you lit up <laughs> because uh, of the fact that we had a – it was one of the first times we'd ever – uh, had known accelerant that we went through research of, of burning and obviously everything that's done at that facility is used to the fullest extent. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. even though we had a small portion of research we needed to do to recreate a crime scene, mm -hmm. uh, you now had a, a known body, a known time, a known amount of accelerant mm -hmm. and could translate that into which insects colonize with an accelerant? How you know did this affect how long it took them to get there? So I mean, everything that's used there mm -hmm. is used to the fullest extent. Yes, yeah. So yeah, yeah. And I could tell your passion that day because I don't think I left the office before you ran out. Because the first thing I asked is, are they still there? It's like <laughs> yes, yes, they're still there, and and you took off. So um, yeah, I remember that. So now yeah, yeah. <laughs> and wrapping up uh, uh, a couple of. I'll say fun things, but uh, different things. So I know in, uh, so we've talked about flies and, and, and maggots. So I've heard of maggot dentistry, okay, where they have taken maggots instead of for root canals to actually put maggots in to eat the flesh and then change them out. I guess there's a purpose in changing them before they go to the next stage. You've, you've heard of this? Uh, not not with dentistry, but in other, other yeah, ma maggot therapy. Basically to take... To take uh, dead skin, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So because it's cleaner than trying to, if they try to scrape it, they're taking the live with the dead. Yes. So yeah. So this works based on the idea that a, and you have to use a blowfly. It has to be flies in the family Califoridae because other flies aren't going to do what you want them to do. And I'm going to go so far as say like, you really want something like Lucelia, which is, that's your first, that's your first fly. That's the fly that can deal with just newly uh, deceased tissue, but yeah, they they stop at the at the living so it's, tissue. So yeah, it's, it's used in in medical procedures now. I, I don't know how popular this is, but I've heard of this. So yeah. I, well, and I just um, I when I talk about this in my classes, like my favorite example is um, uh, Gladiator, the beginning of Gladiator, um, where Russell Crowe's character he's he's got that wound in his arm and right, then he's in right. this procession to Zanzibar and his friend is walking alongside him and he wakes up long enough to see the maggots are in his wound and he tries to pick them out and his friend, whose name I can never remember, says, <laughs> leave them. It will heal. Right. So, I mean, it, it yeah, we, it goes way back and yeah. So yeah, ma maggots are used in medical treatment. Yeah. So, uh, in the class that I took, again, just, uh, quick 40 hour, just crime scene type class. Uh, we also took maggots to make maggot art. Yes. Okay. So you have your <laughs> students doing this also? Sometimes. So, and to explain this, and I always have to tell people that this is a, this is a real thing. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we would take the maggots, we would dip them in paint and just literally throw them on a canvas. They would, they would crawl to their death because obviously in using acrylic paint, they can no longer breathe, I guess. And uh, so therefore they end up dying because <laughs> they're in a solid case of paint. But after, <laughs> yeah. they, after they crawl off, it creates this pattern. And um, many of the detectives have those hanging up in their office That's now. That's awesome. And uh, you can actually go to maggotart.com if, if you don't believe this. And you can, you can <laughs> see that I think they even sell maggots online. I'm not. I'm not positive mm. why. I think you could probably make your own very simply. Well, I by... I know that you can buy them off of eBay, yeah. because for bait. For bait. And or friends. Okay. Because <laughs> so. maggot maggot art would fall, I think, into the maggot friend category. The maggot friend category. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I've never. Uh, I guess I've never looked for maggot art on eBay. I don't know if that's uh, something that sells on there. I don't know, but the, you can definitely buy the maggots. You can yeah. buy the maggots, yeah. but yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe I you... you just leave hamburger meat out, or, or <laughs> what they have us. Uh, it was like a. a oh, I'm trying to think what they had us using to to grow maggots in entomology class. Probably. Um, well, I I like uh, beef heart. That, that was something like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it, it has <laughs> it has integrity, so it'll hold up for a while. So yeah. so if you want a science project for the summer. <laughs> To uh, grow some maggots at your house, go to Michael's, get some uh, canvas and dip them in paint and 
throw that on the wall and you have a great conversation piece, right? Exactly. So <laughs> now, uh, a as we wrap up, I certainly want to give you an opportunity. Uh, you have research going on. I know that uh, research costs money. Yes. And uh, so uh, certainly for whatever you need, please take a moment and tell people what you do and what uh, uh, you uh, have for your students and anything that you want to talk about. Well, I, I do want to, I know you started the time here with thanking the um, donors and the families of the donors for their generous um, gift of, of, their generous gift to the AARC facility. And as you said, without these donations, which are absolutely um, priceless, we couldn't do our research. And while we have <clears throat> a lot of fun with what we do, we, um, we're, we take this. We take this. Um, take this very seriously, and you know, it's it's an honor to be able to to be there and do the work. And so, I just I just want to I want to thank anybody who has been a part of that program. Um, and I, our next phase of this research project that we're moving into is actually um, we're building anywhere between six and nine sheds out at the AARC, and then we're going to um, put uh, donations in the sheds and then what we're going to do is look at how the built environment like being in an enclosure can alter the bacteria succession and possibly the insect succession um, and so that's our next step and um uh yeah and i have a lot of students um if you have if anybody's listening and they have students that are interested college-age students we have um we have an outstanding biology program at sam we have an outstanding um, chemistry program and then the master's program is, or the forensics program is a master's level program, but um, our students um, that major in biology and chemistry do research with us. Uh, I couldn't do this work without them because they have the, they have the man, they're my man hours. They're the reason that, you know, we can sample uh, cadavers for insects and bacteria every six hours. I can't do that. I'm in, you know, I'm in the lecture hall teaching. And so they're out there doing that for me. And so I just wanna, you know, say, Send your, send your smart kids to Sam because we can't get enough of them there. So in the sheds you're talking about, I, I saw a thing online for it. They're not that expensive. Mm -mm. You're putting in like a window unit. It's a very mm -hmm. basic structure. How do people send you money? If they, if they want to support your projects and things you're doing, how would they oh, that would be fantastic. Or, or do that? That would be fantastic. Um, if they wanted to do that, I would um, a, a check to Friends of Biology at Sam Houston would uh, go into my SHSU account, and then that would be used for consumables. So we need to wear things like PPEs, personal protection equipment, gloves, booties, face masks, um, so that we don't get our bacteria on the cadavers. Um, yeah, and so that that check could go, that donation could go to biology, uh, and then you know could, it can say on the note like for Butuli research. Yeah, Thank you. <laughs> of course, and we're going to put uh, uh, your contact information. Of course, your your uh, biography and all the research and things you're working on is on our website at crimescenetoday.com. There'll be a uh, this broadcast will also be on there to share with others and to get that word out. And if there's uh, anything that uh, we can put on there to to share, uh, we'll have your contact information, and that awesome. way that uh, people get in touch with you for the research you're doing and the Thank great you. impact you're having uh, for us in the law enforcement community. So uh, we thank you so much for being here today and joining us and just sharing your work and your passion and uh, your information. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you.